Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it's lovely to welcome you here to this evening's discussion on Syria, the local and the global, uh, which is part of the Trinity Long Room Hub's signature lecture series behind the headlines. My name is Jane Olmeyer and I am the director of the Trinity at Long Room Hub, which is our Institute of Advanced Studies in the Arts and uh, Humanities. And as part of our core mission, we seek to highlight the long-term perspectives that the arts and humanities uh, bring uh, to bear on some of the major contemporary uh, societal issues. Uh, through the Behind the Headlines series, we've explored a number of these over the last 18 months. We've looked at migration, at terrorism, at Brexit, uh, amongst uh, many uh, others. Because what we want to do is to stimulate a well-informed public debate around what are incredibly complex uh, issues, and nothing more complex than Syria. Tonight's panel discussion is in many ways a culmination of other conversations we've been having, especially when we talked about uh, uh, terrorism and uh, we, we looked at it more generally uh, 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 in the Middle East and across uh, the world. Uh, tonight we're going to be focusing uh, very much in looking at, uh, at Syria. We know that the scale and complexity of the crisis in Syria continues to deepen and so does the analysis needed to understand it to try and make sense of it all. Um, so again, we're looking at it from a long-term uh, uh, perspective. Uh, we have, um, well, I was going to say, these are very dark times. I flew back from Washington, uh, D.C. this morning, which is now the epicenter of the madness. And, and I feel sorry for, for colleagues there because... Um, you know, people are just so profoundly upset at what's happening. And when I say people, I mean academics, um, because obviously uh, there's a one bubble uh, which was supporting Clinton and another bubble of people that was supporting uh, Trump. And th the whole three or four days I was there, I couldn't find a single person that voted for Trump or admitted to voting uh, uh, for Trump. Uh, but, but it's clearly a, a much more dangerous world as a result uh, of the uh, election. So we're going to be considering uh, all of these uh, uh, issues. Um, we've got some fabulous speakers, and I'm going to introduce our speakers now, and then they'll come up one after the other. So our first speaker uh, tonight is Rachel Hoare, um, and she's going to be looking at the human story, the impact uh, and trauma which displaced children and refugees experience as a result of the violence uh, in conflict uh, areas. She's going to use her uh, uh, professional experience as a child uh, therapist working uh, with children from migrant backgrounds to demonstrate the importance of creative interventions um, uh, and uh, uh, her work is absolutely fascinating uh, and uh, Rachel is a, a lecturer in French linguistics uh, in uh, the School of uh, Languages, Literatures and, and Cultural Studies uh, here in Trinity. Our second speaker uh, this evening is uh, Dr Anna uh, Babka who comes to us 
uh, from the University of uh, Vienna. She's a visiting research fellow at the Trinity uh, Long Room Hub, and her research looks at the poetics of migration. And tonight, Anna will draw uh, 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 some insights from her work on identity uh, politics. Our third speaker um, is uh, from uh, Syria, uh, Razan Ibrahim. Uh, she's a Syrian-born journalist who came uh, to Ireland to study at the University of Limerick, uh, and she has stayed here as a result of the escalating uh, violence back uh, in her own country, in her home. Uh, she's now a journalist uh, for, uh, with Storyful. Uh, and she's going to be, again, looking at the very diverse uh, nature of Syrian society and uh, political uh, uh, culture there, as well as giving very first-hand personal uh, insights. And then last but not least um, is Dr uh, Jude uh, Lal Fernando from the Irish School of Ecumenics uh, here at Trinity. Uh, Jude um, has participated in previous panels and yeah, he probably needs no introduction, uh, you, you'll have seen him in action before. Um, uh, he is going to look at Syria um, and, and put it in that wider uh, geopolitical uh, uh, context context. Anyway, without further ado, could you join me in welcoming our first uh, speaker, uh, Rachel Hoare. Rachel. Good evening, everybody. Um, I consider myself very privileged as a researcher and a play therapist and child psychotherapist, a bit of a mouthful, um, to, be, have, to have been given the opportunity to work therapeutically and um, with a small number of separated Syrian children seeking asylum in Ireland. Um, I'm going to start working with these children after Christmas, um, giving them the chance to begin to settle in their new country um, before therapy begins. They're, they're in the process of, the, uh, one has already come into Ireland, there's another three on their way, probably in the next couple of weeks. Um, I wish to preface my talk this evening, firstly, with two important acknowledgements. Firstly, that although I'm focusing specifically on Syrian refugee children, the content of the talk applies equally to all refugee children. And secondly, that although refugee children are often referred to as though they are one homogeneous group, it's evident they come from many different backgrounds and um, circumstances. So I'm going to talk to you about the impact and nature of the trauma experienced by these Syrian children and about the different ways of working with them therapeutically through play and other forms of creative expression in culturally sensitive ways. Firstly, I'd like to invite you just to close your eyes as I'm going to play you a 30-second audio clip. Um, and I'd like you to try to imagine some of the sensory experiences and transitions which many Syrian children will have experienced as they embark upon their new lives here in Ireland. A quick warning that anybody who has had experience of war may find some of the noises, there's no images with this, distressing. So I'd invite you to close your eyes because you will, it, it, sensory experience is what it's all about. So my rationale for playing these sounds is twofold. Firstly, to try and evoke just a few of the many sensory experiences of children coming from Syria 
from the gunfire on the streets of Aleppo to the extremely hazardous boat crossing between Turkey and Greece to the often paralyzing fear experienced in the unfamiliar environment and language of a classroom in a country which is not one's own. Secondly, I wanted to evoke the idea of trauma reminders. These are cues which resemble and symbolize aspects of the traumatic events which can lead to distressing reactivation. Sensory experiences related to these events, such as images, sound, touch, and smell, may become learned associations which resurface when a different yet similar set of stimuli are encountered. So thinking back to the sounds of gunfire, imagine the distress experienced by a Syrian child when he or she hears sudden and sharp loud noises in any environment. Research shows that auditory reminders are particularly powerful and distressing. So what exactly is trauma? First and foremost, it's important to remember that trauma reactions are normal responses to abnormal circumstances. As a therapist, I could provide the following definition of trauma. Trauma is an experience that creates a lasting, substantial, psychosocial and somatic impact on a child. How dry and clinical that definition sounds. It doesn't even begin to convey the paralyzing fear felt by an adolescent boy from Syria that he will never master the English language and be able to catch up on the education which has possibly been so violently torn away from him in his home country. It doesn't capture the sense of despair and loneliness which he feels at having lost his family and everything he knows. Many children, many Syrian children coming to Ireland will have witnessed extreme violence, the memories of which will have left them feeling overwhelmed and helpless. This is because they relive in their bodies and the unconscious conscious parts of their minds the moments of terror which they cannot yet describe in words. As Bessel van der Kolk notes in the title of his classic book on connections between mind, mind, brain and body in the transformation of trauma, the body keeps the score. So it's important to recognize that trauma reactions are both psychological and physiological experiences. Trauma also has profound effects on the parts of the brain which control language and a common response is disconnection or dissociation from the social domain of language and memory in order to survive. Ravi Kohli talks about the ideas of thick and thin stories. Inevitably, after a series of overwhelming experiences, young people can consciously only bear the thin, partial versions of these stories. Kohli found that young asylum seekers were often refused asylum after interviews that took place soon after they arrived in the UK, when they were unable to share the details of their full and complex narratives. So the externalization of trauma memories and experiences is considered central to the process of relief and recovery. And sensory-based expression, rather than just talking therapies, encourages externalization through play therapy, art therapy, music therapy, dance movement therapy, or an integrative approach. Furthermore, activities which enhance relaxation as part of trauma intervention often include creative components such as music, movement, guided imagery, and yoga. These different forms of self-expression can help to shift traumatic experiences from the past to the present and can also be used to contain traumatic experiences rather than encourage communication of raw emotions or repetition of troubling memories. In the aftermath of 9-11, many therapists witnessed the huge benefits of art therapy in helping both children and adults to express their emotions and externalize their trauma memories. This is a typical picture um, that emerged after those events with children in therapy. 
Whether or not the pictures included images of helping adults, such as the emergency services, <coughs> provided clues as to which children had a positive outlook and a hope in the future, in contrast to those who believed that help would never come and therapy could be planned accordingly. So creative self-expression is used as a place to store feelings and perceptions that can be transformed then during the course of treatment. It also allows children to actively imagine, experiment with, or reframe an event and to rehearse a desired change. So how do we start the therapy process then with our typical Syrian adolescent? Before therapy even begins, the therapist should develop their knowledge and understanding of the culture of the child by building relationships with people from the community and attending cultural events where possible. The therapist should be aware of cross-cultural differences when it comes to personal space, eye contact, facial expressions, and the different ways in which they're used. It's all about developing a culturally sensitive practice. The play therapy room should contain multicultural play materials to help foster children's play and convey recognition and value of their cultural background. This may include things like animals which are native to the country, non-Caucasian figures and dolls, and a range of different types of dwellings. The reduction of stress in young clients is a central goal in trauma intervention. Returning to our Syrian adolescent, it is likely that his worldview will now include feelings of abandonment and lack of safety. In order to stay safe, he may react with rage at anybody who is perceived as a threat. For this reason, most forms of trauma intervention begin with a focus on the regulation of emotions, stress reduction, and restoration of feelings of safety with an empathic and non-judgmental therapeutic relationship. The soothing effects of creative self-expression can tap into positive sensory experiences which can eventually become resources for self-regulation. Once feelings of psychological safety and emotional regulations have been, have, have been restored, the therapy can target higher and more complex parts of the brain with more focused creative interventions. For example, the child may be invited to create his world in the sand tray in the playroom using all the types of figures that you can see there, um, using miniature objects which can help to give expression to non-verbalized emotional difficulties. And that's just a typical sand tray picture. The pleasurable, pleasurable and sensory aspects of play and sand tray are designed to help the traumatized child to experience self-regulation and self-expression. Another basic principle when working with these children is to recognize and value their resilience, to presume they're survivors and not passive victims. It might be tempting to take on the role of a knight in shining armor who rescues them from emotional turmoil, but the job is more about helping the child to use the strengths that they already have. Recalling memories of positive events that can reframe and eventually override negative ones is helpful in reducing post-traumatic stress. So, to end with our Syrian adolescent then, it's hoped that psychotherapy and play therapy using expressive arts will help him to experience empowerment, recognize his untapped resources, and reconnect to sources of sustenance and nurturance as he embarks upon his new life in Ireland. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, I want to explore a key question we have to ask ourselves and that is who we are in times of war and crisis. 
The philosopher Judith Butler, in her book Frames of War, argues that one way of posing the question of who we are in these times of war is by asking whose lives are considered valuable, whose lives are mourned, and whose lives are considered ungrievable. Butler suggests that we might think of war as dividing populations into those who are grievable and those who are not, since the latter do not conform to Western norms of what it is to be human. An ungrievable life, hence, is one that cannot be mourned because it has never counted as life at all. We can observe the division of the globe into grievable and ungrievable lives from the perspective of those who wage war in order to defend the lives of certain communities and to defend them against the lives of others, even if it means taking those latter lives. Conceiving of lives in that way is important with regard to our colonial heritage, thus we have to consider what remained after the Europeans drew themselves back, leaving those countries alone with political structures and infrastructures they could not handle, paving the way for dictatorships and non-functioning economies. All of this, as it seems, without the proper feeling of responsibility, since, as one could assume, not every life matters equally. Not every civilization or society is valued and estimated equally. Not every life, think of the thousands of people drowning on their way to Europe, we've seen this image, is grievable that does not count as life at all. If certain lives do not qualify as lives or are from the start non, not conceivable as lives within certain political frames, then these lives are never lived or lost in the full sense they are, as Butler argues, precarious lives. What does that mean? Butler claims that in principle all lives are born precarious since we all need shelter and food and clothing and care. And, we, and if we are not cared for, we die. So guaranteeing livable lives means taking over responsibility and maintaining the infrastructural and emotional basis for a livable life. Since, it's, <clears throat> since it is the civil uh, society of Syria of which we speak tonight, a society whose basic human rights are annihilated by torture, ethnic cleansing, and at least by destroying of the infrastructure or the cities as a whole during wartime, all of which makes it impossible to live a livable life or to survive in the first place. The conception of livable or unlivable unlivable lives <clears throat> might be part of an explanatory model to explain uh, why Europe is hesitant, why after Russia and China blocked the strategies of the UN Security Council years ago, nothing much happened, why Ban Ki-moon could say that the UN failed with regard to Syria, why a Syrian dictator, we cannot talk here of the situations of Iraq or Libya, or other countries can, with the help of a Russian leader, bomb civilian infrastructure, hospitals, hence just kill people or let them starve or torture them to death and nothing happens. Moreover, so I'd like to ask, why is it that the officials of Europe are fighting the symptoms of the problem, presently the so-called refugee crisis, and not the main cause, namely the failing of the state Syria with all its horrible effects? We are, in one way or the other, all heirs of colonial situations from which we, in the so-called Western world, are still benefiting 
willingly or unwillingly. We must, therefore, address our post-colonial responsibility. If we want to find explanations as to why the European Union, together with the US and especially the UN Security Council, have not advocated sufficiently for strategies to end the war, we must look at the post-colonial legacy in Syria. Stunningly, all those who could have contributed to developing strategies to end this war operate reluctantly, more or less. The two members of the European Union, France and England, that have been the former colonizers of Syria, should feel even more responsible and take part in sanctioning countries that fuel the war, pushing forward diplomacy, or as Robert Fisk pointed out in his recent talk at Trinity College, should encourage member states to provide a solid infrastructural and educational basis for the inhabitants of the region by financial and moral support. Europe disclaims responsibility for what's going wrong in Syria or in the region more generally, albeit the fact that it was Europe that drew the maps, created what can be called an imagined region in the Middle East after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and assigned peoples to states throughout the region, badly and without enduring effects. Syria was founded, as Rivas Yanisha argues, after the French incorporated several Ottoman provinces into a state of imagination and then was left alone. What we are now witnessing and have been witnessing for many years in this civil war is the legacy of this colonial regime. I cannot go very much in detail here on Assad and his father ruling as oppressive autocrats for decade, neither can I, for lack of profound expertise, talk much about the Sunni Syrians who rose up against Assad but have failed to construct a credible opposition or about the basis of the so-called Islamic State. What I can claim, though, is that Europe contributes to the disaster insofar as it neglects the role it has played in post-colonial times, maintaining the system of dictatorships in the region not only regarding oil trading or other important trade relations, but also in view of accepting those rulers as reasonable interlocutors for Europe's own regional politics. The same strategy of turning a blind eye applies to dealing with Russia's role in this conflict. It seems as if Europe, blaming others for the region's troubles, on the one hand discounts its own historical role on the other hand, and acts as though Syria was the problem of somebody else. However, as we have also seen during the last year, it is absolutely not. So while official Europe drags its heels, Europe's civil society has shown some indication that solidarity is alive and that the vision of a democratic Europe will not be abandoned. Community action, whether in smaller communities or in larger cities, is becoming a guiding principle for many. As a result, Actions and organizations from civil society may have the ability to influence action at an European level, prompting them to address their responsibilities overseas. Thank you Thank very you. much. Um, good evening, everybody. Uh, I'm really honored to be here today uh, with this very important panel about my country. Uh, when I was uh, trying to organize what I'm going to say tonight, 
Um, I thought of the Syria of 4,000 years of history. Will I start from our history, or will I start from the five years of the war, this devastating war in Syria? Then actually, I remembered Samira. Samira is a Syrian woman I met in Kos when I was volunteering helping refugees there. Samira crossed the Mediterranean with her two daughters. She lost her three men in the Syrian war. Her husband was killed by Islamic State. Her son was killed because he was fighting with the Syrian regime. His other, her, her another son was killed because he was fighting with the Free Syrian Army opposition. Samira's story really, I think, summarizes and sums up the complexity and the um, uh, sensitivity as well of the Syrian war. Or will I start <laughs> maybe from uh, 1918 um, when France and England, out of nothing, they decided to divide Sham region into four countries. They divided Sham region into Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Palestine. They divided the undividable of the uh, region. We have similar culture, language, ethnicity, um, all kind of um, art, music, and they divided us to four uh, countries. Or will I go back as well to 1917, Belfort Declaration, or 1948, when a strange body was created in this region, Israel. <laughs> or will I go to um, the American invention, uh, um, um, invasion in 2003? These um, historical events really shaped the region. And what we are now in Syria is kind of reflection of what is happening um, from these past events. Um, so as I said, these past events uh, affected directly and indirectly what is happening right now in Syria. Um, from, as I said, from Samira's story, you can tell how complex is the Syrian war. Um, and how complex is the Syrian society? Because to understand the Syrian war, you have to understand the Syrian society and culture itself. Um, I always describe Syria as sophisticated, complicated piece of mosaic. <coughs> we, um, and we ha there is misconception and stereotypical picture as well of the, uh, when we say Arabs, they all paint Arabs in the same brush. And I'm sure some of you have been to Arab countries and they visited some of them. Um, you know that each country is really different from the other. For example, Saudi Arabia, there's no way it's similar to Lebanon or Syria. And Syria is different as well from Algeria or from the other countries. We have commons, but still we are very different. Syria as well, you can't brush, you can't put all Syrians in the same brush. We are also societies in one society. So we have almost, or at least, 17 sects. Religion, um, ethnicities, uh, so religion, what I mean by religion, like uh, we have Muslims, Christians, <coughs> Sunnah, Shia, Jews, we have um, Catholic, Protestant, uh, Orthodox, 
all these kind of um, <coughs> ethnicity, uh, uh, religion inside. Besides, we have ethnicities, Arabs, we have um, Kurds, we have Ashurians, Armenian, Greek, and till now, and I have one of my best friends, um, he still lives in West Aleppo till now, and his parents originally are Armenian, came, his grandparents came when the genocide happened to Armenians. And Armenians didn't have or didn't find any safe place except Syria to stay in. Till now, they are there, living there, and they don't want to leave. As well, I have another friend from Greek origin, and their uh, surname actually Greek. So till now, they live there, and they really simply, they don't want to leave. Um, uh, and not only, as I said, uh, the religion and ethnicities, as well the intellectual. So in Syria, we have conservatives, secularism, we have um, liberals, um, Salafists, uh, we have different aspects as well of uh, the um, intellectual um, differences. And I believe, maybe I am wrong, but I think secularists are the biggest minority um, in Syria. It is really big and they are very active and you can see them in the media and in the soap operas, film and art. Um, so after all this talking about the civil society we have, I always hear um, the term civil war. It is, I mean, I always think of it, is Syria what is happening now, civil war or not? It is very difficult question to answer, but um, I think of it as um, it is controversial. Um, in my opinion, and maybe some people, they don't agree with me, uh, it's not civil war, but it has aspects of civil war. It's not entirely civil war yet. Why? Because we have different groups in Syria, different religion, culture, ethnicities, intellectuals, they are, they are both supporting the two sides. And at the same time, some of these people, they are against both sides. Again, we have people who are, let's say, Muslims, Sunni, um, Shia, they are against two, and some of them, they are with the two. So it is very complex, a complex one. It's not related to uh, religion or uh, societies or ethnicities. It is more political conflict. This is how I see the conflict in Syria um, right now. Besides, if it is only civil war, why do we have all these thousands of jihadists coming from all over the world? And <coughs> lately from, uh, I'd say, uh, Khaled Kelly, maybe we've, we've all heard of him, um, fighter, and he uh, bombed himself in Mosul, not in Syria, but still, there is connection. So we have all these jihadists coming from everywhere fighting in Syria. How it is civil war when we have all these groups coming to fight inside. Besides, it's not only Syrian people fighting. Countries, continents are fighting on our land. And maybe Dr. Jude, he will speak uh, in details about the global um, war. But we have from Saudi Arabia to Iran. They don't like each other. So let's fight in Syria. So we have Turkey, we have uh, Russia and America. And they don't like each other. So we don't have a place to fight. Let's go to Syria. 
And we have as well uh, Qatar, we have Lebanon, we have, um, I, I, maybe I can spend hours naming the countries, but like really a lot of countries fighting in our country and it is kind of destroying the whole uh, aspect of revolution and the rights. Um, so all this happening, I'm sitting on my uh, bedroom watching the news, watching all the photos, very sad photos coming every day from Syria, from refugees. Then I decided I don't want to be a witness anymore. I know I can't change, I don't have a power, I don't have a money, but I can go and help and do something. So uh, this is when I went to Greece and um, I started to volunteer helping refugees and it was one of the most amazing, sad, positive, negative experience in my life. Um, like it is hard to see your whole country is moving uh, with, with very sad stories but they have hope for a change and that was in 2015 and I can't forget till now when a boat was coming over to the shore and you can find maybe 30 people I was talking to each one of them each one of them is from different religion each one of them from different ethnicity and culture and language and not only this each one of them some of them are from different political opinion. Some people support the government, some people against the government. Some people fled because of free Syrian army or armed opposition. Some people fled because of the uh, regime violence. So it's the whole community is affected, not only one group. Um, I mean, what hurts me as well more, the uh, children, the lost generation we are facing <coughs> right now. Maybe one last thing. Um, I always remember from uh, Kos. Um, I met a Syrian man. He uh, fled with his son. His uh, wife and two daughters were in uh, Syria. He fled so they can do family reunification. This man, he broke his leg before he get to the boat, but he didn't care. He arrived to the shore. He did his paper, and he was um, trying to continue his road to Sweden. Um, and I told him, you can't walk. He said, I don't care. I have to get there and I have to bring my family over here. And I remember the last question I asked him, um, what do you want? Do you need anything? He answered just one simple answer. He said, I don't want anything. I want people to look at me and smile and tell me things will be okay. So please, smile if you come across one day any Syrian. Thank you very much. When we heard about the stories of children who are traumatized, we are touched. When we hear about the inhuman categorization of the grievable and the ungrievable, we are provoked. When we hear about Samira's story where her husband and to sons perished, we are deeply troubled. And when we hear how Syria, under a secular regime, managed with so many diverse groups, and now it is being fragmented into pieces, we are puzzled. We came here this evening 
not simply because we are interested in Syria as a piece of information. We came here because we are constantly being touched by the suffering of the people. But there's a question here. When we are being touched after hearing so many stories of the suffering of the people, we equally become utterly helpless, not knowing to find out which course of action we should follow. Am I right? Because we are being given a picture that is quite distant from us, that is quite sophisticated, that is quite complex. If we are going to find a particular course of action, yes, a soft heart, an empathetic heart is necessary, but at the same time a tough mind is needed. As Martin Luther King said, for change there should be a soft heart as well as a tough mind. I'm going to address the tough mind. Let's begin with the popular depiction about the Syrian conflict. In fact, I would like to use the term Syrian conflict within quotation mark. It is depicted as an internal conflict which came into existence with the March 2011 pro-reform movement being crushed by the dictator Assad. That's one version. The second version is that it has got into a mode of high-intensity warfare due to Shia Sunni regional conflict. Both of these depictions in a way reflect consciously or unconsciously the location from which these depictions are constructed. It is happening there. We are here. Us and them. These depictions do not in any way reveal our complicity. I am a European citizen. I use an inclusive language when I say our complicity. I have lived here for 14 years. Now where lies our complicity? How could a pro-reform movement which was crushed by Assad went into a high intensity warfare where almost 10 regional players are active on the ground from sending boots on the ground to sophisticated missile targets as well as major powers like France, Britain, the USA and Russia. How could a pro-reform movement, which in a way clashed with Assad's military, resulted in 400,000 deaths? How could a pro-reform movement, which was attacked by Assad's regime, produce 
7.4 million internally displaced refugees by now according to US estimates. 4 million people who were forced to flee their homeland. It cannot be simply because of an internal conflict. Nor can it be simply because of a regional conflict. I don't minimize the undemocratic fashion in which Assad ruled. Everybody knows the communist government of Kabul at one stage in the 80s was not a saint. Everybody knows that Saddam Hussein was not a, was not a saint. Everybody knows Muhammad al-Gaddafi was not a saint. Everybody knows Assad is not a saint. But who decides who is on our side? and who is our enemy. Why not? The same media coverage, the same call for democracy is not, is not given to one of the most, most discriminatory states, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Qatar, United Emirates of Iraq, Because they are with us. Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, Al-Assad, and the communist government of Afghanistan in the 80s are not with us. So who determines? Whose regimes should be toppled? It is we who determine. Because we want to claim hegemony in this region. Let me give in detail. By 2011 March, we have been told that there was a pro-democracy movement. But by then, by then, the British and the American special forces were training anti-Assad troops in Syria. By then, in Iraq, under the US ambassador John Negroponte, and Robert Ford, who were known to have formed dead squads in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Honduras, targeting leftist rebels, were forming mercenary groups. And by 2013, when I met one of the UN delegates who went to Damascus, he revealed by then, Saudi government had given at least 10 billion US dollars to anti-Assad groups and Turkish government had given at least 2 billion US dollars to the same groups. And today there are at least 100 rebel groups who are fighting Assad. There isn't a single rebel group which is not being funded either by a regional power or by a global power. Why did Hillary Clinton spoke all the time in his election campaign against Assad and Russia? Her foreign policy is heavily determined by her intimate relationship with Qatar and regime. Qatar and Saudi Arabia. John Podesta, who led Hillary Clinton's 
presidential campaign is a paid official agent of the Saudi government whose firm is paid a salary of $140,000 per month. And Clinton Foundation's main benefactors are Qatar and Saudi governments. During her office as Secretary of State, in the whole of American history, U.S. government and State Department, when she was the Secretary of State, endorsed an $80 billion worth arms deal to Saudi Arabia. And who is fighting whom? Who is fighting whom? And Donald Trump is proposing a different path. What is the different path? He has signaled that he would align more with Russia, perhaps include Assad into talks and destroy ISIL. And what is ISIL? Julian Assange, in his most recent interview with John Pilger, revealed that ISIL was mainly formed during the Iraq occupation of the US of Iraq, and then after the invasion of Libya. And he used a beautiful metaphor saying, Libya is the coke of the bottle of Africa at the same time, which had a high level of welfare expenditure as a regime. It is not rocket science, my final comments, to realize when the cork of the bottle of Africa is hit, that the distance from Tripoli to southern European border of Lampedusa is just 300 kilometers. When Syria is vehemently attacked through the Turkish border, from Izmir to Lagos Islands, it's just several kilometers. And then from Izmir Island, from, from uh, Lesbos Island to Athens, it's 400 kilometers. And that is the eastern border of Europe. You find the domino effect. Are these unintended consequences? What is the domino effect? There are four. A huge number of refugees. Secondly, one secured free border dream of Europe has been highly compounded as a result of individual states claiming to control their borders with this emergence of the far right, which also partly contributed to Brexit vote, ultranationalism is rising. That is the second domino effect. Third, empowering of fringe Fringe smaller groups in religious fundamentalist sector, like Salafism, Fout, rise of the far right in the Europe, in Europe and in the United States with the ascendancy of Donald Trump. Mm. And are these unintended consequences? Why should we have academia? Why should we have journalism? Why should we have civil society? Why should we be puzzled about the ascendancy of Donald Trump and Brexit? Should we have looked at this? Most of the journalists, even civil society lobbyists, are puzzled, mystified. How did he come to power? What happened in Brexit vote? Could we not foresee this? 
Could we not foresee this? To some extent, the alternative media which foresees this has been suppressed. My final comment is, during the war, invasion of Iraq, or before the invasion of Iraq, there was a massive voice led by Germany and France. No invasion of Iraq. The same voice cannot be heard when it comes to Syria. Let's say in one voice, stop invasion of Syria. By the Russians and by the US.